0: Thank you, Mel. I uh, had supper at my parents' house last night, and my sister was there, and she said, Dave, when are you preaching next? And I said, tomorrow. She goes, what are you speaking on? I said, well, our sermon series during this Advent season is Christmas Unexpected, and my topic is Unexpected Silence. And she is a director for marketing for a national firm, and she said, here's what you should do, (laughs) okay? And she goes, Unexpected Silence. I know, Chrissy, we're all thinking that. She's like, okay, I have another introduction. Here's what you should do. And she gave me three introductions. So I'm thinking if I ever hit a writer's block, I just call up my sister because apparently she knows what to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this Advent season. And thank you for this sermon series idea that came up. And last week as Mel spoke about unexpected baggage and the interesting lineage of your son, Jesus Christ. And today as we look at unexpected silence, what that means when you don't seem to be actively engaged in what's happening. Help us to see what you are doing, even if it's not quite as clear as we might be expecting or wanting. Help us to have minds that understand what you're doing around us and hearts and hands that go out and respond. May my words fall down, O God, so that your words might be lifted up and your spirit might speak to each and every person here what it is that you want them to hear this morning. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. I grew up in the 1980s. I was hanging out with one of our young adults this past week, and he said, Pastor Dave, how old are you? And I said, I'm 36. And he goes, no way! And I'm thinking, do you think I'm older because of the receding hairline? What's going through his mind right now? He goes, I thought you were only 30 years old. And I thought, what do you want from me? (laughs) I was alive for all but one glorious year of the 1980s. The 1980s gave us the best rock band and the best album of that rock band. U2's Joshua Tree came out. And you can disagree with me, but then you would just be wrong, and that's okay. Okay. The 1980s also gave this grade one class photo. And if you're looking at that, trying to figure out which one I am, I'll tell you in a minute. But this is why it's special to me. It's not a close-up picture. My teacher, Sandra Doyle, attends Ellerslie. And here we are 25 years later seeing each other again. I am in the top left, um, uh, second from the left. The 80s also gave us some pretty special fashion, didn't it? I think the reason... (laughs) that I don't have hair is because of all the hairspray I used in the 80s. But as the U2 song builds up, ladies and gentlemen, you're four-time Stanley Cup champions. Not once, not twice, not three, but four times the Edmonton Oilers have won the Stanley Cup. What does this have to do with unexpected silence? Nothing. But when I was in grade four... Like any boy in the 80s, I had my eyes on the prize. There was the best present that any young boy in elementary school would ask for. So I put it on the top of my Christmas list and said, Mom and Dad, this is what I want. In grade four, Christmas rolled around and I didn't get what I asked for. I got some Lego and I probably got Transformers or Ninja Turtles or something like that. And I don't know how your house works, but in my house, this is how it works. Christmas, you get the big gift. Birthdays, you get a gift, but it's much smaller. So I had to wait all year and I waited until grade five. And I put that big thing that I wanted at the, first, at the top of my Christmas list. My mom said, you know, you might wanna make some other mentions because you might not get it. And so I went down on Christmas morning and it wasn't there. But in grade six, I had had enough. And I put one word on my Christmas list. And I went down on Christmas morning and none of the boxes were the right shape. And none of the boxes were the right size. And so I was a little bit disheartened. But afterwards, my dad said, I have one more present for you. Anyone want to take a guess what it was? The 8-bit Nintendo Entertainment System this magical box that with a couple pushes of a button, things would take place on the screen, and it was glorious. And I was the happiest little boy ever on that Sunday Earth mor- that Christmas morning. That story is 25 years old. Three years of silence. Do you know how long that is when you're 11? That is a long time. Now that might be a humorous story of waiting, but sometimes during that unexpected silence, it's not all that funny. How long, oh Lord, before I meet that right guy or that right girl and can spend the rest of my life with them? How long, oh Lord, before I finally find that job that I'm waiting for or the promotion that I so obviously deserve? How long, oh Lord, before my spouse and I can have a child? How long, oh Lord, do I have this medical issue, and receive no healing? How long, O Lord, before my kids come back to faith? How long before you give me direction for school, for work, for what it is I'm supposed to do next? The prophet Habakkuk asked this question at the end of the Old Testament. How long, O Lord, shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry out to you violence, and you will not save? There's a cry of our heart Wanting answers, desiring answers, and yet God remains silent. My three-year-old has a children's Bible, and then one of the lines in this intertestamental period is, the weeks turned into months, the months turned into years, and the years turned into many years. It's not just the silence that bothers us so much, it's that it's so unexpected if you have your Bibles in front of you or your phone or tablet, I invite you to open them up to the table of contents. And normally if you hear me preach, you'll say, and now we'll be going to the book of John. Nope, we're going to stay in the table of contents. It's going to be fascinating. The Bible is not in chronological order, but there is a significant dividing line between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is written before the birth of Jesus, while the New Testament covers his birth, his life, and about 50 years after his death. And over the next half hour or so, we're going to be looking at the 400 years of silence between the last book of the Old Testament and the first book of the New Testament. If you enjoy taking notes, I'm calling this first part from Malachi to Matthew. Now, whether you're a first-time attender or you've been attending Ellerslie since you were born, biblical history can be a little bit challenging. So I hope that this makes sense. I hope that you can follow along. And thankfully, Pastor Mel set this sermon up so well. Last week, as he was talking about unexpected baggage, he talked about the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, and now there's three sets of 14. If you weren't here last week or you just need a summary, he gave us this visual. And speaking about the genealogy from Jesus, he says, the first 14 generations take us from Abraham to David. We learn about Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and this is what God says to him one night. Abraham. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham chooses to listen to God. He leaves his family. He travels away. And over the book of Genesis, we see Abraham's son Isaac and Jacob, and Jacob's son Joseph. And eventually, we're introduced to Moses in Exodus. And Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy talk to us about the law and the beginnings of the people of Israel. They arrive in the promised land. We read the book Joshua, and we have Judges and Ruth and 1 Samuel. And finally, we meet the king David himself at the beginning. Of 2 Samuel. He is anointed a king. The next 14 generations didn't fare as well. From the promised land and incredible prosperity, it all went downhill. The next 14 generations take us from David to Israel's exile in Babylon. Again, with the table of contents in front of you, that takes place in books First and Second Kings, and that's where the chronology comes to an end. You'll notice the last 17 books listed in In the table of contents are all the names of prophets except one. It's the book of Lamentations. And these prophets are calling God's people back to God, reminding them what they're doing wrong, what they need to do to change, and what it is that God wants of them. The Old Testament ends with a glimmer of hope. While the Jews are under Babylonian captivity, a new empire rises to power in 539 B.C., defeating the Babylonians and putting a new ruler on the throne. A year ago, at this time, we were walking through the book of Daniel, and here are some excerpts from that book. This is Daniel 5, 30 to 31. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. The next chapter, chapter 6, verse 28, we read this. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Remember that name, Cyrus the Persian. Now, there's a difference between the way the Babylonians worked and the, different, and the way the Persians worked. The Babylonians were kind of like the United States. They say, if you, we've taken you over. You come into our nation, and you get integrated into our culture. We want you to experience Babylon. The Americans want you to experience America. But once Persia takes over, they do things a little bit differently. They allow each person, each people group, to have their own nationality, to have their own culture. That name, keep that name Cyrus in mind. We read this at the beginning of Ezra chapter one. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, this happened at the same time as Daniel. In order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken to Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem Jerusalem. In Judah, that very same year, 539, perhaps 538 BC, a remnant of Jews returned to Jerusalem. About 80 years after that, in 457 BC, Ezra comes with a larger contingent, and a few years later, Nehemiah again comes with some more people to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. As the prophet Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, deals with much the same moral issues as Ezra and Nehemiah are. Many people believe Malachi is actually contemporaries with Ezra and Nehemiah. And Malachi, the last book of the Bible, is written, give or take, 425 B.C. And then silence. Four hundred years of silence. Jewish history had Moses. And then the judges telling them what they should do. They had kings and prophets saying, this is the way we are to live. And then silence. Weeks turn into months. Months turn into years. And years turn into many years. And God says nothing. After I graduated from college, I continued to meet with my mentor and talk to him about ministry, talk to him about the challenges that I was facing as a pastor, as a young man who was single. And sometimes I'd go to my mentor's office and I would say, Bill, I'm struggling. All my friends are married. All my friends seem to have work as a pastor and I can only get the part-time job here or there. Then he said to me, Dave, God is never doing nothing. He is always doing something. While the silence was unexpected, God is at work. At the same time, the Jews were rebuilding Jerusalem. The Greeks were coming out of their slumber. A man by the name of Socrates became one of the most influential philosophers of the time. His greatest student was a man by the name of Plato. Plato's greatest student, a man by the name of Aristotle. The teachings of Aristotle, along with the influence of his father, Philip of Macedon, captured the heart and mind of arguably one of the greatest military commanders of all time. At 20 years of age, Alexander the Great took the throne and before his 25th birthday had toppled the 200-year-old Persian Empire. Sitting under the teachings of Aristotle, Alexander the Great was fascinated by the idea of one culture that all believes the same thing, acts the same way, speaks the same language. Perhaps you've heard the term Hellenization, the Greekifying of Middle East. They would have the same language, the same morals, be part of one universal culture. And by a military and political might, this world has never seen Alexander the Great made it happen. To think about how powerful this Hellenization was. The original language of the Old Testament, written mainly in Hebrew, a few portions in Aramaic was overwhelmed with the Greek culture around it that the Jews realized we need to write a Greek version of the Old Testament, which we call the Septuagint. The Jewish people simply shifted their allegiance to the Greeks, paid their tributes, and were more or less left alone for the next 150 years. But with the Greeks still in power, one such man was not content with the current state of political and financial stability the way that the kingdom had attempted to renew this vigor of Hellenization. So he decided he would take over. His name, Antiochus Epiphanes, the name that he gave himself, the manifest God. He hated the Jews, and the Jews hated him. They called him Antiochus Epimenes, which means Antiochus the Insane. In 175 BC, his unbridled hatred for the Jews was put on full display. He abolished all forms of Jewish worship. He made the reading of Scripture, along with the practice of Sabbath and circumcision, capital crimes. He even sacrificed a pig on the sacred altar in the temple. He was not loved. After about 10 years of this reign of terror, a priest and his five sons decided to fight back, which marked the beginning of the Maccabean Revolt in 166 BC. To quote Harold Honer, Judas Maccabeus did this. He proved to be the terror of his enemies and the pride of his nation. Under him, the Maccabean struggle went from guerrilla warfare to well-planned battles. No longer hiding in the hills, the Jews fought back against this great Greek empire And they took back most of Jerusalem, restored the temple, rebuilt the altar, and resumed the daily sacrifice. Well, this passion is applauded. It created its own set of problems. When you have this zealotry from the Jews, sometimes people take it a little bit too far. The Jewish leaders became increasingly dictatorial, corrupt, and legalistic, making some to wonder if they were even Jewish after all. The immorality and oppressive nature of the Jewish leadership became so bad that the Jews actually asked the Romans who had now defeated the Greeks to come and to restore peace among all the Jews. As the tide of history was about to change, there were three leading parties among the Jews. The Pharisees, which many of you have probably heard of, were made up primarily of the middle class and had the largest following. They taught both the law of Moses and the oral history expecting that the Messiah would come and save them from foreign oppression. A second group not quite as well known, the Sadducees, were the following the sect of the rich. They focused on both the political and secular realms in in order to continue the temple and the priesthood and line their pockets. The Aseans, not quite as well known as the other two, were passionate about following the law as closely as possible and resisted Hellenization. They didn't want to have anything to do with the Greeks, moved outside of Jerusalem and set up more or less their own colony. And many believe John the Baptist is an Asean. Now, a 10-minute history isn't gonna cover every detail, but I hope it gives you a framework to understand what happened during those 400 years of silence. So where do we go from here? I think like the Jews, for many of us, when we experience silence, we yearn for Jesus. God is never doing nothing. He is always doing something. What do you do when God is silent? What goes through your mind when you have questions and God is slow to anger? How long, O Lord, before what? How long, O oh Lord, before my kids come back to faith? How long, O oh Lord, before I'm healed? How long before you restore my relationships? How long before I know which education to choose? How long before my boss get hit by a bus? I mean, sorry, <laughs> something else. God, the silence is going on for too long. Answer me. I hope you enjoyed that short history. To see God's hand at work while the Jews are in exile and how he uses the Persians to bring them back out, that's fascinating to me. To hear that Alexander the Great is the student of some of the greatest minds that have ever lived, I find that fascinating. To learn the Jews actually invited the Romans to bring the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, to them, a little surprising. Do you see yourself in this story? We look at the Old Testament and see hundreds and hundreds of years of history, and I don't think many of us realize we also have a history. When the Jews left Babylon and head back to Jerusalem, they were disheartened to say the least. The temple had been destroyed. The city was a pile of rubble. There was no wall to protect them. Shattered expectations. Maybe you're here this morning and you're checking church out for the first time. Maybe you've been here for years. Maybe you had to use every ounce of willpower to get out of bed and just show up because your expectations and reality don't mesh. You never expected this would happen. This could be anything. This could be shattered dreams. This is unexpected. God, my world is falling apart. Why won't you answer me? The book of Psalms is filled with 150 prayers um, covering the full range of human emotion. Are you grateful? Are you sad? Are you in awe? Are you angry? Are you repentant? Are you lonely? Are you questioning? Do you want revenge? The psalm, sometimes called the prayer book of Jesus, has a psalm for every facet of the human emotion. Arguably, one of the most depressing or, depending on how you look at it, encouraging psalms, is Psalm 88. It begins with these words, O Lord, the God who saves me, day and night I cry out before you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. By the middle of the psalm, God has still not answered. Verse 14, why, O Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? To use the language from today's message, why, O God, do you remain silent? Why do the heavens feel like brass and you don't hear anything I say? The ending of the psalm might come as a surprise. It doesn't end at hope like you might expect, but rather at first glance what seems rather depressing. This is the final verse of Psalm 88. You have taken my companions and my loved ones from me. My closest friend is darkness. You might look at that verse on the screen behind me and say, at first glance it looks depressing. Maybe because it is depressing. But something is so obvious, so front and center, so tangible that we don't even see it. The author of the Psalms, the Jews, 400 years of silence. Today, everything, all these people have something in in sync. They all remain faithful. The psalmist, in deep emotional pain, never stops talking to God. The Jews find themselves under empires that leave them alone, under kings who attack them, under an ungodly priesthood, under some things that are working really well. Yet in all of these scenarios, they continue to remain faithful. I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know if this is the most wonderful time of the year. And the parties and the food and the presents is something you look forward to for the other 11 months. Or if this time of year is difficult. It's depressing. It's lonelier than the others. But you're here this morning. And you're faithful this morning. Even if it was difficult to come, you're expecting something. You know I just need to be faithful. One of my closest friends grew up in a fairly dysfunctional church. And this isn't just for a couple of years, but it's been for two or more decades. And as a young man in youth, he has always been, had an intellectual leaning to himself and he would go to his youth pastor and he would ask questions and he'd say, there's something about the Bible I don't understand. There's something about Jesus that I don't quite get. There's something happening in my life and I'm not quite sure how God is going to respond to this. And his youth pastor would just schluff him off. Don't worry about it. Just keep coming to youth. Keep coming to church. Everything will be fine. Thankfully, my friend, while disenfranchised with the church, thought, you know what? I think there is something about God. There is something more I want to learn. So, God, I'm going to give you one more chance. I'm going to go to Bible college for one year. And I'm going to give you one year to meet with me. The friends that he met at Bible college, the professors who were unintimidated by the difficulty of his questions, the top notch speakers that were brought in for conferences, he met Jesus. And he was faithful. And God answered. And speaking on those 400 years of silence, I want to capture the highlights while at the same time putting some of the puzzle pieces together. God may not have spoken through prophets or kings or judges, but he was hardly silent. God is never doing nothing. He is always doing something. In over 200 years of relative peace, the Jews were given the freedom and space to determine how they would worship God. And you know what happened? They moved away from temple worship and moved to following the Torah, the law, the books of Moses, and recognized that this is the way that they are to live. And even though the temple is only in one place and nowhere near its former glory of the time of Solomon, they believed that they would meet with God. When Alexander the Great Hellenized the Middle East and made Greek the common language, what did the Jews do with those Hebrew scriptures? They translated the entire Jewish Bible into Greek so everybody could read it. When the Romans succeeded the Greeks, what did they do to connect the world? They created the peace of Rome. This to me is amazing. Shortly after the death of Christ, the Roman provinces were interconnected by 372 roads. Listen to this. four. Hundred thousand kilometers of roadway put together by the Romans. God is never doing nothing. He's always doing something. And the world is ripe for the coming of the Messiah. What is God doing in your life during these periods of unexpected silence? When life is hard and God is silent and the heavens feel like brass... What is God teaching you? What is he teaching you through the books you're reading, through the sermons you hear, through Christian friends, through the circumstances that you find yourself in? What is God doing in the periods of unexpected silence? That may be helpful, but I think you're also wondering, what do we do, Dave? How do I act when this silence goes on for years and years? What am I supposed to do? Yearning for Jesus is great, but how do I handle today and how do I handle tomorrow? Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, but it's the third gospel, Luke, who gives us the fullest and most robust account of the birth of Jesus. In the opening two chapters, he introduces us to a number of different people, and all of them have something the same about them. I'm going to read to you four different passages, and we'll see if you can connect them on your own. This is about a priest named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, Luke 1, 5, and 6. It'll be on the screen behind me. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and regulations blamelessly. Mary, the mother of Jesus, needs no introduction. Listen to what the angel says to her in chapter 1, verse 30. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Jumping ahead to chapter 2, Jesus has just been born, and his parents are going to present him in the temple they meet a man they've never met before. Chapter 2, verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before seeing the Christ. Jumping down to verses 36 and to 37. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Over 400 years of silence. But did you hear the commonality? Person after person after person remained faithful to, to God. Despite the present circumstances under the horrible rule of Herod, despite the challenges that they were facing, they remained faithful to God. Are you currently in an unexpected silence? Remain faithful. Are you having difficulty finding work? Remain faithful. Do you wonder if God will ever heal your body? Remain faithful. Is your most significant relationship falling apart? Remain faithful. Whatever the challenges you're facing, remain faithful. If I were sitting where you are, I would be doing what you're doing, silently listening. But your head is probably spinning at 100 miles a minute. And I always take notes while Mel preaches And I like pen and paper, and I'd write the word faithful, and I'd put a big box around it. While inside, I'd be screaming, faithful? Are you kidding me? Do you know, preacher boy, what's going on in my mind? Do you know what I'm facing right now? Do you know how difficult it is to get out of bed in the morning? Do you know that my world is falling apart, and you're calling me to be faithful? That's the big application? I don't know what's going on in your life right now. But I'm aware of one of the most powerful words in the English lexicon. Hope. We remain faithful today because of our hope in tomorrow. The Jews were able to remain faithful for 400 years of silence because of the hope they had of the coming Messiah. Galatians 4.4 But in the fulfillment of time, God sent his son. We remain faithful today because of our hope for tomorrow. Like the Jews in 400 years of silence, we may not see the answer that we're looking for. In this lifetime, we may not be healed. We may not meet that special someone. The silence might drag on longer than we expect it to. But like the Jews, over 400 years of silence, they continued to remain faithful today because of the hope of tomorrow. The Messiah has already come, but he's going to come back, and it's going to be glorious. And if we struggle with health, when we get to heaven, our bodies will look better than any of the most greatest Olympic athletes While we struggle with our relationships on this earth and heaven, there will be no sin, there will be no worry, there will be no fear, but our relationships will be perfect. And we will never try to one-up one another. We will always have work to do, for God has great plans in store for us. And God will never remain silent. And he will always be present for us to talk to. God is never doing nothing. He is always doing something. And we remain faithful today because of our hope for tomorrow and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this sermon series of unexpected Christmas. Because sometimes life doesn't work out the way we expect it to. And sometimes that silence goes on longer than we want. But thank you that you have also reminded us that this isn't the first period of silence. But we can look back into history and to see a group of people who for 400 years didn't hear from you the way they wanted to. But you are never doing nothing and you are always doing something. So give us the strength and the power to remain faithful today because of the hope we have for tomorrow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.